Your Excellency, uh, Ambassador Emil Bricks, uh, who's sitting at the back uh, because he's not feeling too well. Someone, yes, there you are. Uh, Dr. Kergler, ladies and gentlemen, uh, may I welcome you all uh, to this, which is the fifth uh, annual Austrian history lecture at the LSE. Uh, my name is Professor Alan Sked. I'm one of the people who helped establish this program. Uh, and it's been going now for five very successful years uh, with distinguished speakers, one year in Austrian and one year someone from the United Kingdom. Uh, this year it's Austria's turn to, prefer, uh, to provide a speaker uh, and we have a very distinguished one tonight. Uh, he is Dr. Werner Telesco of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Uh, he's recently made, been made director of the Institute of the history of art and musicology there. Uh, in the past, he's been a visiting professor at the Sorbonne. Uh, he's won a number of prizes, the Berlin Verlag Jubilee Prize, the Cardinal Linitzer Prize, and he's the editor and co-author of what will be five, six volume uh, history of the fine arts in Austria. Uh, he's head now of a research project on the history of Vienna's Hofburg, uh, he's been, and still is, I presume, a member of the research committee of the history of the Habsburg monarchy that's run by the Academy. Uh, and tonight uh, he's going to speak on the subject of history reconfigured, Habsburg imperial symbolism and regional identities in the visual arts during the 19th and 20th centuries. So welcome, Dr. Telesco. We're looking very much forward to hearing your lecture. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the kind invitation to this lecture at the London School of Economics and Politics. I will talk about history reconfigured. That means the culture of Habsburg society in the 19th and 20th century. The relationship between the center and the periphery constitutes a central issue of history and the history of art in the 19th century. In this regard, it is not just the focal point of cultural production which merits our attention. The general structure of decision-making processes also deserves to be taken in consideration, after all, and in general, the center can be regarded as a central part of political and cultural decision-making. On the one hand, the Habsburg monarchs deliberately encouraged centralizing tendencies in the 19th century by ensuring that the memory of the glorious history of the House of Habsburg was upheld in all of the media. On the other, countries and cities they are keen to develop a spirit of local patriotism by nurturing a culture of remembrance. Even though the relationship between the nation and the dynasty on the one hand and the regions on the other turns ought to be far more complex than often been assumed. From this perspective, the nation did not represent the sum and unity of the different localities in a particular region at all. Rather, the nation existed and acted 
with the aid of institutions in these regions. Significantly, issues concerning the center and periphery under the Habsburg monarchy can also be regarded as matters of state policy. Hence, the famous October Diploma of 20th of October 1860 and the February Patent of 26 February 1861 divided legislative powers equally between the Emperor, the Imperial Council, the Reichsrat, and the provincial diets of the Crown Lands. This twin-track approach towards centralist and corporatist autonomous administration, corporatist here in the center of the states, was to be continu continued consistently throughout the reign of Emperor Franz Josef. Centrifugal centralism and centripetal federalism constantly found themselves at loggerheads with, with each other. In Austria, Baron Alexander von Bach, here on the left side, and other reformers of neo-absolutism expressly wanted to speed up the process of state building, which had lagged behind that of Western Europe at that time, by means of rigorous centralization. One example of a way to achieve this goal in the field of cultural policy was the idea of organizing all archives into one central imperial archive. In contrast, a group led by Count Leo Thun Hohenstein, here on the right side, and Count Johann Bernhard von Rechberg, the president of the Federal Diet, vehemently campaigned against centralism. After the compromise with Hungary, 1867, it was all over bar, the shouting for the long and fiercely defended unity of the Reich. The Austrian Empire had been replaced by a dualistically conceived Austro-Hungarian monarchy in which nationalism and constitutionalism were the most important defining elements. Overall, the reality of the Habsburg state was shaped by all kinds of generalizations, this also applies to cultural formations of identity, which the Habsburgs encouraged in the 19th century, with evident tendencies towards homogenization. The visual arts in particular were repeatedly called upon to play a centralizing role at the start of Emperor Franz Josef reign. As we can see in this comment, published by the Neue Freie Presse on 5th of August 1865, Citation, the more uh, heterogeneous the constitutive elements of a state are, the more the intellectual factors in the same are called upon to help establish that pool of ideas, dispositions, and convictions without which a state, state cannot exist. For while material force may suffice to create states, moral fortitude and rectitude are required to preserve the same. End of citations. A popular means of asserting and enforcing generalizations was to create a certain recurrent canon of carefully historical themes, subjects, and Im images. Consequently, it epitomized a tradition chiefly defined in select literary and visual terms. In particular, this selectively 
structured view of the past offered an ideal opportunity to, to propagate unifying symbolizations through the accentuation or exclusion of certain topics. Hence, Austrian rulers were presented as the embodiment of bravery, human dignity, and noble-mindedness in numerous publications of the late 19th century. Examples of this include the cultivation of science under Duke Rudolf IV, alongside Maria Theresa's, here are some examples, selfless love for her people and the function of Emperor Franz II, the first Austrian emperor, as a prudent father of the nation. The cult of erecting monuments was a further means used by the centralized dynastic power in its efforts to enforce a unifying art policy. More than anything else, it provides a particularly striking example of the points of emphasis placed at the center of power, it is the imperial residence, the Viennese Hofburg, and also reveals the historical personalities and myths which were harnessed and propagated in the interests of conferring unity. In the 19th century, the imperial palace in Vienna had become the epicenter of political decision-making in, in the Habsburg and Danube monument. The fact that the Hofburg served as the emperor's family home and at the same time as the unchallenged centerpiece of politics and administration lent its function a duality that was mirrored in the title of the town where the palace was located. That means officially was the German Haupt- und Residenzstadt. It is the empire's capital and the monarch's official residence. Of high impact in the history of the Habsburg residence was a series of structural alterations and extensions which were made during the long reign of Emperor Franz Josef I, 1848 till 1916. This shaped and still are shaping the outer appearance of the Hofburg and at the same time that of Vienna's topography in a very substantial way. Of particular importance here, both topographically and iconologically, is the Heldenplatz, in English, Hero Square. Located in the front of the palace, this square gained two monuments raised there, one in 1860 and one in 1865. The first dedicated to Archduke Karl and the second to Prince Eugene of Savoy. And both must be viewed not only as political products of the neo absolutist period, but also with an eye to Habsburg's generally discomfort with, with dynastic memorials. Astonishing as it may seem, the sources tell little either about imperial traditions or about their perception by the public of earlier centuries. The sources, the written and unwritten sources, also offer little insight into the mechanisms of Habsburg's self-representation. From this viewpoint, it's remarkable that, as records show, the inauguration of the monument uh, to commemorate Archduke Karl in the outdoor Hofburg Square produced an intensified discussion of the look of the square as a whole and its remodeling. So, to give an example, the most important Obersthofmeister Arndt remarked that the outer Hofburg square was a character of a provisional solution, German provisorium, 
When it came to the final decision of how the square should look after its restructuring, the visibility of the memorial was a criterion in the emperor's argument. The emperor insisted, for the time being, that the free space between the monument and the area of the palace garden has to remain unspoiled. The peripheral position of the Hofburg has always been linked to the question of how to position monuments in relation to the palace, to the Hofburg palace. This issue was also more problematic because from the late 18th century onwards, the erection of monuments became a central element of courtly and hence also civic self-expression. The Habsburgs, however, were extremely reticent in this regard. Amazing it may seem, even the famous imperial letter of 20th of December 1857, which gave directives for the expansion of Vienna, contained no reference to the corresponding issue of decorating the gardens and squares. Apostolic Emperor Franz Josef I's claim to the succession of the universally Christian and supranational office of monarch, as expressed tentatively in the comprehensive plans for the redesign of the Hofburg from 1869, can be regarded as an essential element of contemporary panegyrics, but hardly as a consistent characteristic in the representation of the Austrian emperor. Far more important in this particular context were the dominant political realities when the monuments, the two monuments, emerged. For example, the documentary evidence shows that Archduke Karl was regarded above all as the legitimate heir of the dynasty's founding father, Rudolf of Habsburg, when a monument dedicated to Karl was unveiled on Vienna's Heldenplatz in 1860. On the basis of his glorious deeds in the Napoleonic Wars of Liberation, the Archduke was used as a means of legitimizing Austrian's current foreign political role and of stylizing the monarchy as the advocate and leader of the German Confederation. The monument shows Archduke Karl, brother of Emperor Franz II and great-uncle of Emperor Franz Joseph I, mounted on horseback and raising a flag high into the air. Unveiled in 1860, it was the first new monumental equestrian statue that Vienna had seen for more than 50 years. Poems and songs had mythologized Archduke Karl's victory at the Battle of Aspern, 1809. Painters had visualized the topic and school books spread supposedly true details about the course of this famous battle across the monarchy. Its dramatic climax and most commemorable moment had come when, at a critical stage of this battle, Chief Commander Archduke Karl on horseback grabbed the standard of the 15th Army Corps and led the Habsburg troops in the decisive attack against the enemy. His alleged shouted words, German, fürs Vaterland mutig vorwärts, in English, for the Fatherland with courage ahead, were without doubt in inventions of a later time. Apart from following descriptions in literary sources, Fernkorn's statue followed the example of engravings that depicted the same scene. Among them, 
Also paintings, for example, the famous of Johann Peter Kraft, Erzherzogau, and the Battle of Aspen from the year 1812, today in Vienna's Military History Museum. Ten years later, for example, in 1871, the artist Karl von Blas, a painter, chose the same moment of the grabbing of the flag as a central theme when frescoing a lunette in the Hall of Fame of Vienna Arsenal building. This shows the longevity of the image of Archduke Karl with the flag in his hand and rushing ahead in the patriotic, patriotic pictorial memory. With Archduke Karl and the 1809 Battle of Aspen, the focused Lieu de Mémoire is a recent one, unlike that of the second monument on the Heldenplatz, where the issue of commemorative content must be understood in a different way. Up until now, in the 19th century, only members of Habsburg's dynasty had been deemed worthy of having a monument built in their honor. Yet the same outer Hofburg Square was deliberately chosen to erect a statue of Prince Eugene of Savoy. And unlike other important historical figures, Prince Eugene barely featured in the fine arts of the 19th century. This despite the fact that because a prince was not identified with any other particular nationality in the monarchy, he could therefore be expected to have been accepted by a broad public. In this case, the contemporary political goals of the House of Habsburg were projected onto the monument to Prince Eugene at the Heldenplatz. The two monuments, Archduke Karl and Prince Eugene, allude to the conqueror of the Turks as the embodiment of Austria's heroic age, age and to his role as a defender of Western Christendom. On 19th of October 1860, following personal instructions he had received from the Emperor, Adjutant General Count Karl Grüne, former head of Franz Josef's military chancellery, set out the Emperor's decision that the Prince Eugene monument would be based on a design by Anton Dominic Fernkorn. The completed monument displays a clear correction towards a gentler, more Baroque-oriented dressage movement on the horse on which the prince is uh, mounted. This slightly raising of the horse front legs, a movement known as the levade, created a dynamic tension between the relative stillness of the monument to Eugene and the sense of movement in the heroic pose of Archducal monument in the foreground. At the time when the two monuments, commemoration of Archducal and Prince Eugene, were designed and planned, the demolition of the fortifications was about to start, which meant a complete change in the urban profile of a town that was both capital and seat of the court. The Grundplan, that means the general plan for the Ringstraße, the city's enlargement project, shows that the area around the imperial palace had been spared first, actually with the intention of saving this area for an imperial building project, which later emerged as the Kaiserforum. This project was intended to communicate both the Hofburg's urban and symbolic function and to accentuate its political importance. Archduke Karl and Eugene, Prince uh, Eugene were to assume the function of 
gatekeepers of the outer Hofburg Square were flanking access to the inner courtyard in a corresponding manner. At the same time, they vividly referred to two fundamental myths of Austrian history, the repulsion of the French, the one side, and of the Turks on the other side. The monument to the Prince Eugene can also be understood as a response visibly expressed in public space to the political claims of the nationalists in the monarchy and to those of the Hungarians in particular. The Habsburg had liberated large parts of, uh, of the Kingdom of Hungary from Turkish rule and had integrated them in the Habsburg Empire thanks to Eugene's military successes. In fact, to remind the Magyars of everything that the Habsburg had done for them, a monument to Prince Eugene, executed by Josef Rona, was also erected in front of the royal palace in Budapest as late as 1900 and paid out for the emperor's purse at a time when the national conflict was at its most heated. Was a monument to Prince Eugene gave specific content to the Hofburg. By contrast, Caspar von Zumbus, 1888, monument to Maria Theresa across the Ringstraße from the Hofburg's Hero Square, did not simply focus on a specific historical figure, but also offered a panopticum of an entire age. This statue marks the innovative attempt to important historical figures as a means of transposing the goals of Austria's 18th century age of reform to the reign of Franz Josef I. Placed between the court museums, the monument both documents a bourgeois liberal ethos of enlightenment and commemorates all the social forces which supported the state. Tumbush's work was intended to honor not only the empress, but also the great man who had contributed substantially to the splendor of her reign. It aimed to instruct unenlightened citizens about a great epoch in the history. It was no accident that the patriotic commemorative broadsheet spoke of the citation return of the great empress and of citation when the monument was unveiled. Ultimately, it was historian Alfred von Arnett who was responsible for the incorporation of certain characteristics into the design of the work, the origins of which are to be found in liberal rather than dynastic thinking. This is clear from the decision to emphasize historic realism rather than allegorical aspects of the work. In the work itself, the allegorical aspect was reduced to little heraldic figures of the sovereign virtues sitting at the feet of the empress' throne. The glorified idealization of the dynastic's past principally conveyed through the deeds of glorious figures and expressed in the inordinate amount of historical testimony that 19th century Austria produced in texts and pictures resulted in an entanglement of historical facts and inventions of the 18th and 19th centuries, which made it highly tempting to construct an image of Maria Theresa as a unifying supranational and maternal figure with the grand fictitious title of Empress of Austria. 
Taken together, the above three examples of monuments cast light on different genres and yield quite different outcomes with regard to the mechanisms of representation, which linked art and politics in the 19th century. The close social ties between the Hofburg and Vienna also coincide with the observations that the history of the Hofburg's construction, interior design and decoration cannot be periodized nor analyzed in terms of monolithic or uniform faces. Relations are generally communicated and made transparent by explicitly, explicitly taking up historic styles or by uncovering and or drawing attention to the old structures of buildings. For this reason, it is necessary to examine that Vienna Hofburg, above all, with an eye to the way in which the various eras are linked, it is possible, in this sense, to see all the works that contribute to the building of the residence in Vienna as a continued process that stretches over the centuries and, in doing so, reflects Habsburg dynastic reign and ancienneté. In the second chapter, I intend to explore the impact of various cultural missions in the Habsburg monarchy on exemplary problem areas, such as the protection of cultural monuments and the depictions of Austrian national history. This central question will be examined not only from the perspective of art history, but also in the context of post-colonial studies. Questions about Habsburg's civilizing missions were high on the agenda in different spheres of life during the late 19th century. Consequently, it is possible on one hand to detect a variety of phenomena and ethnographic peculiarities in the territories of the Habsburg monarchy during the 19th and early 20th century. And on the other, it is astonishing to note how the multifold processes of centralization, it asked Austria as a unified state nation, and regionalization, that means multiracial and multi-language identities in the Habsburg crownlands, existed side by side. This chapter examines the very specific situation of a multicultural empire that existed without colonies and questions the extent to which it is permissible to even speak of cultural missions in the Habsburg monarchy during the late 19th and early 20th century. The rapid advance of historical research that was initiated and supported by the state in the course of the 19th century clearly shows the degree to which concepts of homogenization or diversification became established. It also offers an important point of departure for an exploration of the ways in which the Habsburg dynasty practiced forms of inner colonization with the objects of civilizing missions within the borders of the monarchy. Here we are able to see that the question of Habsburg civilizing missions was recognized as an issue in the final quarter of the 19th century with the aid of different disciplines and media, either in the form of studies intended for use in an encyclopedia which duly recognized the accomplishments of each crownland, for example, the famous Kronprinzenwerk, or in the form of explicit artistic policy which manifested itself in the reform of the arts and crafts industries and the staging of exhibitions. Ultimately, 
Such actions can always be regarded as manifestations of cultural and educational policy. Consequently, the situation of the Habsburg monarchy in the 19th and 20, early 20th century is characterized by a confusing variety of phenomena which derived from the processes of centralization and regionalization and which existed side by side. First, administrative measures, which had the effect of promoting an inner colonization of the empire, can be regarded as part of a civilizing mission. Second, there were also efforts to achieve homogenization from below. In particular, language policy was to assume central importance in the multi-ethnic empire. A particularly instructive example is Emperor Joseph II's failed policy to introduce German as a language of administration and the state by decree in 1784. As Prokopovich demonstrated in his study, Austrian officials who had arrived in Lemberg in 1772 intended to beautify the city, the city by demolishing all fortifi fortification walls and improving sanitary conditions, as well as by implementing green spaces in accordance with Enlightenment and neoclassical ideals. In contrast to the dominant German-Slavic competition in the Czech lands, the two major competing nationalizing factions in Lemberg, its Polish and Ruthenian inhabitants were imagined as brotherly Slavic nations rather than as competitors. Especially in the region of occupied Bosnia in the period from 1878 to the outbreak of World War I in 1914, the politics of the Habsburg monarchy addresses one central issue, the central impact of Europeanization in a so-called backward society. Indeed, the interplay of homogenization versus differentiation and diversification, which typifies the Habsburg monarchy, must be understood as a distinctive feature of the Central European region in the 19th century. The most obvious form of this phenomenon is to be found in literature, where the existence of highly differentiated regional micro-colonialisms within the monarchy have been demonstrated in the case of Galicia and the multilingual authors Ivan Frank on the left side and Thaddeus Ritter. Significantly, colonialism and the related mission to civilize were not just confined to Austria and Hungary. A study of Galician literature clearly shows how the dominance of the center was often less keenly felt than that of the peripheral powers, such as the dominance of the Poles as perceived by, by the Ukrainians. Similarly, the conventional enduring center versus periphery model also deserves to be questioned in the case of Bohemia and Moravia during the late period of the Habsburg monarchy, since there is no way that we can talk of a linear colonial relationship of dependency on Vienna for these regions either. Instead, Bohemia and Moravia were core regions for the monarchy in political, economic, and cultural terms and on a par with the center. Furthermore, 
They already had established transport links to Vienna at an early stage. The rapid advance of historical research, which was instigated and supported by the state in the course of the 19th century, clearly shows the degree to which concepts of homogenization or diversification became established and offers an important point of departure for an exploration of the ways in which the Habsburg dynasty practicized forms of inner colonization. In Austria, scientific research into antiquity began to emerge with the work of the circle around Josef Reiher von Hohermeyer in the 1820s. At the start, it was chiefly associated with the names of Alois Primiser, Franz Schischka, and Josef von Scheiger. The work was complemented by two journals for writers and literati, which appeared in the 1840s, Adolf Schmiedl's Österreichische Blätter für Literatur und Kunst or Ludwig August Frankl's Sonntagsblätter, which were published from 1842 to 1848. The latter consisted of articles about works of fiction, theater reviews, notes on individual artists, and new buildings, discussions of art exhibitions in Vienna, and theoretical treatises that touched on artistic issues. In addition to these private associations, there was already the so-called KK Zentralkommission für Erforschung und Erhaltung der Baudenkmale, that means a commission for the preservation of uh, historical monuments, which was established on 31 of December 1850, many of whose conservators worked in an honorary capacity. Some of them were also members of this association. The awareness of the fine arts monuments, which had survived and been studied by art historians, evolved to such an extent that it had a decisive impact on feelings of identity with the imperial state. Examples of this include major restoration projects, such as the completion of St. Vitus Cathedral in Prague, for example, and the documentation of the antique palace of Emperor Diocletian in Split, the left side, are the uh, most uh, important examples. In this connection, scant consideration has been paid to the fact that the famous Viennese art historian Alois Riegel on the right side not only established a new theoretical foundation for the preservation of historical monuments during this time, but, she had, but uh, that he had always devoted all his energies in the last three years of his life as a member and later as a general conservator of the KK Zentralkommission to the application of this theory in the everyday practice of monument conservation. The excavation of Diocletian's palace in Split is just one example of Riegel's activity. The depiction of Austrian national history as the history of the imperial Austrian state was the declared aim of Josef Alexander Freiherr von Helfert, the undersecretary at the Ministry of Education between 1848 and 1860. He believed that the pertinent knowledge of the history of the Austrian state would lead to the kind of national Austrian awareness that he wished to bring about, one which also be open to and tolerant of regional and national myths in line with his intentions. The Österreichische Nationalenzyklopädie, a book project of Franz Grefer and Johann Jakob Heinrich Zückern, pleaded not only for the recognition of such cultural diversity, it also introduced the concept 
of a superordinate nation state which was supposed to link the autonomous nation the autonomous nations to each other. It presented both public figures such as statesmen, scholars, poets and writers and key cultural aspects including towns, monuments, specific natural features and popular customs from Austria, Hungary, Bohemia, Croatia, Transylvania and so on. The manifest concept behind the encyclopedia was only taken up again for extensive development by Rudolf, Archduke and Crown Prince of Austria. Finally completed in 1902, the famous Kronprinzenwerk consisted of 24 volumes and was published as German, die österreichisch-ungarische Monarchie in Wort und Bild between the years 1886 and 1902. The two notions of ethnography and folklore used in this work both terms are important in that they emphasize unity in the diversity of the Habsburg monarchy, in contrast to the German version of ethnography. The Kronprinzenwerk was published in 397 installments, which were brought together in a total of 24 quarto volumes that began to appear in 1886. Each ethnic group was to have its place in this comprehensive account which aimed to document the entire multi-ethnic empire with its crown lands on the basis of the most up-to-date scientific methods in 587 monographic articles by 432 authors. All of the articles underwent equal treatment. As the programmatic title already indicates, illustrations were now of equal value to words and appeared next to the text. The complete word was published in a German and Hungarian edition and consisted of 12,596 pages of text in the German edition and no less than 4,529 illustrations in the form of woodcuts. The extremely ambitious goal of the overall work is also revealed in the note from Archduke Rudolf addressed to the emperor, his father, in 1884. It stated that the work was intended to provide a citation, comprehensive picture of our fatherland and its peoples, end of citation. Significantly, the introduction, written by Crown Prince Rudolf in 1887, stated that the study of the peoples within the empire was, citation, also of practical value for bolstering the general love of the fatherland, end of citation. Thus, the work clearly draw on concepts of the early 19th century. And, one might add, it was on this theoretical basis that the publication aimed to provide scientific proof that the monarchy was not a construct of chance, but of necessity. As a result, the entries in the Kronprinzenwerk covered a correspondingly broad range of subjects. In general, the treatment of each crown land featured the following aspects geographic descriptions, so individual landscapes, ancient history, the Roman period and the Great Migration, regional history, Habsburg legends and myths, ethnography, and so on. In most cases, the history of the particular crown land was illustrated through the depiction of important artworks. This approach enabled the most important visual depictions of the history of the Austrian state to become widely popularized. 
as visual stereotypes, the significance in the way the crown lands came to be regarded should not be underestimated. In addition to the depiction of works emanating from fine arts and popular folk art, the functionalization of natural monuments in the regions that we see in the Kronprinzenwerk revealed a completely new dimension, the specific purpose of which was to convey positive feelings and emotions. The extensive exploration of the question of post-colonial discourses in the Habsburg monarchy also become, becomes evident, that's all a uh, first example for the Kronprinzenwerk, becomes also evident in the questions related to the arts and crafts, as Diana Reynolds has demonstrated. Her research has proved that even the seemingly apolitical genres of art production, such as the arts and crafts, were capable of documenting hegemonial aspirations. She investigated Austria's civilizing mission in Bosnia on the basis of the reform of the arts and crafts industry as an example of inner colonization within the Habsburg monarchy. A network of provincial museums, arts and crafts museums, you see here the Museum of Prague uh, on the bottom and left uh, in Budapest and then the right side in Vienna. A network of provincial museums, arts and crafts museums, new sciences such as uh, ethnology and art history and exhibitions embodied the state's involvement in the crownlands. Here was an example of a gentle yet insistent claim to power by the modern state, which was able to exert its influence on the population in educational terms with the aid of knowledge that was carefully organized in partial by museums and exhibitions. We therefore see that the question of Habsburg's civilizing missions was recognized as an issue in the final quarter of the 19th century with the aid of different disciplines and media, either in the form of studies intended for use in an encyclopedia that duly recognized the accomplishments of each crown land, that means the Kronprinzenwerk, or in the form of explicit artistic policy which manifested itself in the reform of the arts and crafts industries and the staging of exhibitions. Ultimately, such actions can always be regarded as manifestations of cultural and educational policy with the aim to create unity within diversity and diversity within unity. The different nations and ethnic groups were to play an important role once more after the collapse of the monarchy in 1918, the last chapter of this lecture. And while turning the turning points, the famous turning points of the years 1918, 1919 and 1989 are the most striking. They are probably not the only to be relevant in this context. In the more recent historiography of the so-called successor states to the monarchy, an assessment of the role of the Habsburg monarchy appears to have settled at some point between demonization, that means the monarchy as a prison of peoples, and Idealization on the other side, it means a monarchy as a model for the House of Europe. A further consideration is that while the new states were proud of their revolutionary roots, they also sought to establish a historical legitimacy 
which would preserve as an interest. In contrast to Western Europe, the eastern part of Middle Europa undertook intensive efforts to establish national myths overladen with political messages. In this sense, the famous battle of uh, Mohac, 1526, against the Ottomans and its disastrous outcome for Hungary can be regarded as a particularly significant and symbolic date. Hungary, under King Louis II, was completely defeated in this battle. Bohemian Hungary, the lands of the hairless king, subsequently fell to the Habsburgs. The Ottomans had already occupied the country for over 150 years before the Habsburgs were able to reconquer and incorporate the territory into their states. The powerful symbolism of this battle, the Battle of Mohac, becomes evident on another date. On 12th of August, 1687, the imperial forces led by Charles V, Duke of Lorraine, Maximilian II, Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria, and Louis William I, Margrave of Baden, finally managed to achieve a decisive victory over the Ottomans under Sultan Mehmed IV, and were in Mohac again. Hungary and Transylvania was comple were completely liberated from Ottoman rule following this victory. The coincidence that the two battles had fought at the same place in 1526 and 1687 was reason enough to make the commemorative site of Mohac a place steeped in destiny par excellence. In a medal printed by Johann Jakob Wolrath, uh, you see this medal here, the Ottoman victory of the Hungarians and Mohac in 1526 is contrasted with the imperial triumph in 1687. Hence, Mohac also symbolizes a place where the long-standing humiliation of a major defeat in the past was redeemed at long last. The catastrophe of 1526 had been offset by the victory achieved at the same place in 1687. And Mohac was to remain an important point of reference in more recent Hungarian history. In 1919, Professor Akos Mihalfi compared Hungary's collapse with the Tatar invasions as well as the Battle of Mohac. By doing so, he was alluding to the Hungarian trauma of the Treaty of Trianon. It was uncanny. The borders drawn up at the same time eerily resembled those of the Ottoman era. As a result, the name of Mohac became an instrument of mobilization which could always be activated and deployed in day-to-day -day politics, which is precisely what Miklos Horty, regent of the Kingdom of Hungary, attempted to do. To mark the 485th anniversary of the Battle of 1526, a new reception building and an exhibition center were formally inaugurated in Mohac in uh, 2011. The political subtext behind the accompanying ceremony chiefly consisted of the manage that for Hungary to survive, it must secure the interests of the nation. Ultimately, history will declare that the Hungarians have to fend for themselves in times of difficulty. 
The symbolism indicated here is also reflected in the symbolism of the four-story building designed by the architect Georgi Vardash and built, not without good reason, in the form of the crown of St. Stephen. Mohaj uh, 1526 is therefore not only the synonym for a lost battle, but also represents a national trauma. Viewed from the perspective of the Hungarian nation, it symbolizes a feeling of being crushed between major power blocks, the Habsburg on the one side and the Ottomans on the other side, and hence the loss of national sovereignty. On the other hand, the extent uh, to which monuments were able to update certain political and ideological problems is particularly striking in the earlier modern period under the Habsburg monarchy. Numerous columns were built and dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. You see here the uh, example in Vienna. They serve as visible testimony to the famous Marian piety, Latin Pietas Mariana, which was so closely linked to the House of Habsburg. After 1980, such monuments were identified even more directly with the Habsburgs. The destruction, particularly evident in Bohemia, points to an attempt to shake off the trauma of the Battle of White Mountain, 1620, and 300 years of servitude imposed by the Habsburgs. This becomes particularly clear in the context of the question of the return of Prague's Marian column, currently the subject of a heated debate. This column was built in the proximity of the famous Hus Monument in 1650 and topped in 1980 uh, 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 without any major lasting damage. Since then, however, activities supporting the re-erection of the monument have continued unceasingly. A lone wolf in this regard is the sculptor Petra Vana, who has spent the past the past 15 years creating a faithful reproduction of the column. Van has stated he is motivated by the hopes that the monument might be restored despite the absence of any positive signals of the site of the city authority that this will happen. Precisely, the study of the Immaculate Conception in Prague shows that it is not always easy to in- instrumentalize a monument, in this case a religious one, for explicitly political and cultural purposes. After all, monuments often had a multiple connotation. A comparable case is set in the last example of this lecture, that of St. Wenceslas, in German the Heilige Wenzel, a figure always available for use in a variety of different functions, whose cult experienced a significant upsurge after the battle, the famous battle on White Mountain, 1620. Ever since the revolutionary year of 1848, the saint, in concrete terms, the Baroque statue of Wenceslav on horseback, set in Prague's uh, square, had become a site of tumultuous political demonstrations, which felt obligated to the national myth of Wenceslas as a national patron saint and to the continued existence of Bohemia. Completed in 1912 and 13, the new monument 
dedicated to Wenceslav, sorry. This one, the monument made by Josef Václav Miselbeck, has therefore already dispensed with a deeper Christian symbolism. St. Wenceslav increasingly became established as the patron saint of the state and the nation in the first Czechoslovak Republic. So, in 1923, the first and only gold coin to be minted by the young republic, which regarded itself as liberal and secular, bore the image of Wenceslas and Prague's Wenceslas Square finally achieved the rank of being the undisputed site of national identity and self-assertion in the striking political upheavals of the years 1939, 1968, and naturally 1989. All the examples cited above reveal that the visual arts were assigned a central role in the context of imperial symbolism and regional identities. Furthermore, an analysis of the different artworks clearly shows that the political claims were also conveyed in large part via the visual media. In this sense, the visual media are not so much a passive depiction of historical events or political ambitions. Rather, they are inter alia an active factor in shaping history. As a result, particularly in the question of forging identities, it becomes clear how visual media can always be construed as productive forces in the historical process. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you very much for a, <coughs> for a fascinating lecture, which we all enjoyed. Uh, if anybody has to leave, could you leave now so that we aren't interrupted when questions are asked? Uh, all your pictures and things sort of brought up all sorts of ideas in my mind. The statue at the end, the, 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 the Maria column, I was thinking that after the First World War, the Rudetsky monument, for example, in Prague was taken down and it's now in some hall behind the main square, and then I always wonder whether the, the Czechs at one stage will become self-confident enough or uh, anti, well, well, happy enough in their own identity to perhaps re, re put that back up. But um, what's fascinating about the Habsburg monarchy in general is this, um, this, this, this tension between the unity and diversity, between the centralisation that you get mainly politically and yet the cultural diversity which is nearly almost there and even during periods which are supposedly ones of great centralization like the Metternich period it's also a period in which you get cultural nationalism being allowed by the monarchy to bloom in all parts uh, of the empire um, partly uh, one of the reasons I don't know whether you ever go into this but one of the things that struck me when I was doing some research uh, on the Metternich period was that when British visitors uh, went to Vienna and talked to Austrian bureaucrats, one of the things Austrian bureaucrats always boasted about was that in their little offices in Vienna and the Hofburg, 
they had huge arrays of statistical information. Mm. Uh, they would say, if I want to know anything about any part of the empire, all I, want, all I have to do is go to my bookshelves as a bureaucrat and every piece of information I need regarding anything that happens in a province is on the shelf. And this statistical service, which may go back to Central European cameralism or, uh, I don't know, international conferences where you're carving up parts of Europe and you want to know what's in the little parcel of territory that you want your, your hands to get uh, or your little fingers to grab. Uh, the statistical service was always there and that together with the fact that emperors like Francis and Francis I made endless journeys around the provinces, spoke mm. all the languages, went everywhere. Joseph II did it. Uh, they would speak that of special days where all the peasants could come and talk to them mm. or they, they would go and talk to the peasants in the provinces or the peasants could come to the Hofburg in Vienna and talk to the emperor. But the, between the knowledge travelling, the knowledge of languages, the statistical knowledge, these people had a very, very intimate knowledge altogether of the, 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 the cultural diversity uh, of the empire that they ruled over. And I think on the whole... Uh, culture, this was something they took pride in because it made them a kind of European dynasty and it gave the, 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 the Habsburg dynasty a purpose. But the, as you say, the tension is why is this not married to some kind of decentralization or federalism? And the idea was that I think, would you agree that unless the, the family or the dynasty kept all this huge diversity going in tandem, that the whole thing would just break down? Mm. You're right, naturally. Uh, the statistic question uh, is a very important one. Uh, we found uh, also a document uh, in the Austrian uh, state archives that uh, statistic information uh, were collected concerning the emperor jubilees. That means if there were not enough people uh, who had to come to festivate uh, together with uh, uh, Stadthalter, uh, so the notes were made and sent to Vienna and uh, at the uh, residence at the Hofburg Palace uh, in the so-called Obersthofmeisteramt uh, the, the agenda was disputed and uh, the problem was discussed and the strategy uh, was developed uh, how to manage uh, with this, uh, this situation uh, how uh, you can uh, uh, achieve uh, a situation and uh, to develop a situation where the people accept the emperor as the father of the nation. That means uh, the uh, love of the love towards uh, Emperor uh, Francis uh, Joseph I has uh, not a consequence uh, only for the visual media, but uh, at the first time nationally uh, a statistic dimension. Without uh, statistic, uh, probably you cannot manage uh, such an empire. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, looking at the presentation of the dynastic image, mm -hmm. one way they might have been able to do that would, be have, would have been to have held more coronations. Mm -hmm. one, one of the things that's curious is that although uh, Francis I or the second Holy Roman Emperor makes himself Emperor of Austria in 1804, and all the subsequent Habsburg family leaders are emperors of Austria. 
there's never an Austrian imperial coronation. Mm. And very often, you know, even in Bohemia and Hungary don't have the mm. coronations. Why don't they use coronations as a kind of propaganda tool more? Why was there never an imperial one? Uh, there were plans uh, regarding the coronation um, of the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef at uh, 1852, um, published in the Augsburg Allgemeine Zeitung, and later, uh, later in uh, uh, 1863, uh, that means in the course of the uh, Frankfurt, uh, yes, the Frankfurt. Uh, probably it has to do something with the uh, uh, political uh, situation in Germany. That means uh, it could be <coughs> interpreted as an offension for the uh, Deutsche Bund and the uh, Second uh, German uh, Empire. Uh, it's a very good example that uh, a coronation of uh, Franz Josef, uh, King of Bohemia, uh, did not take place. So, that's a fascinating problem. Uh, also in uh, a connection with the situation that uh, in the year 1867, naturally, uh, Franz Josef was crowned as a, uh, a king of Hungary with great pomp. Uh, that means we have a situation with... Uh, uh, different kingdoms, one empire, but uh, different uh, historical situation and traditions, which uh, the emperor uh, had to manage. Uh, so, and, uh, which was rather modest in his. Yeah. I mean, later on, for example, they're very, very reluctant to uh, use anything about Rudetsky because once they're, they're in alliance with the Italians, mm. this record mm. of crushing the Italians in 1948-49 is a bit embarrassing. Mm -hmm. yeah. What the coronation? Um, so long as until 1866, so long as they hope to be well, it's not just that the German prince, not necessarily the German emperor. But so long as they hope to be the leading ruler in Germany, they would probably have looked at giving up on that have a coronation in Vietnam. And he's willing to go to Frankfurt and preside over the meeting with all the German princes. But having himself crowned as emperor in Vietnam might well dig a ditch between him and the rest of Germany. Maybe that was the reason why he didn't do it before. And after 66, it would really have been a confession of defeat to set yes. up a coronation in Vienna with, with what having done what he did in Germany. Yes. It may, may well have been, yes. But, but it's very interesting that uh, there exist uh, pictures, oil pictures, uh, which uh, depict uh, Franz Josef as Austrian emperor from uh, uh, the year 1848 uh, uh, till the end of the empire, uh, in uh, contradiction to the historical situation. That's uh, curious and uh, quite interesting. Mm. Sorry, I'll probably come back. But any other questions? Sorry, gentlemen. There. Uh, oh, I, um, Sorry, could you? I, I, we, we do have microphones, so I wasn't sure we did or we didn't. But where to Could you say any of the? Um, there was the Empress Elizabeth, the wife of Franz Joseph, who was assassinated, and I think she had progressive views. And uh, I once, an Austrian friend of mine, once said that, uh, yeah, well, it was uh, upset in progressive circles. Could you just say some impact of that had? Uh, on the Amsterdam money and why that happened. Um, her influence on uh, Franz Josef was enormous. That's uh, well known. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what's uh, very interesting is that uh, uh, 
historian, uh, historians believe that the influence of Empress uh, Elizabeth is also enormous on uh, Franz Josef politics in Hungary. Uh, that's the most important point in, uh, the 50s and, uh, in the 50s and 60s of the 19th century, I think. Uh, till uh, her assassination, um, it's quite uh, uh, difficult to reconstruct the historical situation in the archives because uh, only very little is known about the political ambitions of Empress uh, Elizabeth written in sources. That means uh, Andrashi and Deak, that are famous known, uh, names uh, in connection with the Hungarian politics, but it's a, a different uh, chapter. Uh, that's the most important point, that the Hungarian policy of the 50s and 60s it probably was steered by Empress Elizabeth, uh, often in contradiction with uh, Emperor Franz Josef. Okay. Uh, sorry, other questions? Sorry, gentlemen there. I, I'd be interested to have some sense of the extent to which the monarchy um, in the 1890s and the turn of the century uh, looked towards some kind of um, need for a response to a, an industrial problems mm-hmm. uh, in the way that the Bismarck government went for social insurance. Was there a perception of a need for it? Was there an attempt to do it? And would the dual monarchy in any proper way throughout the whole of the empire been able to try it out? That you mean that uh, how was the situation uh, in confrontation with uh, the German uh, empire uh, in industrial terms? No, what I was thinking more is yes. um, Germany was obviously uh, an advanced industrial country. Yeah and already had a proletariat, organized unions, the Social Democratic mm. Party, the, the Marxist agenda, mm. which um, uh, Bismarck tried to buy off uh, by social measures, mm. which were very advanced mm. at the time. Mm. I just wondered if there's any read across uh, down the road. Mm. But the situation in Austria is quite different because uh, Franz Josef had always a fear uh, because... Uh, he uh, had a bad experience with the revolution of the uh, 18, uh, uh, 1848. That means from that point, uh, that was a starting point for the new absolutistic reign of Franz Josef, and he always offended uh, social measures. That means the Sozialgesetzgebung, which is uh, famous for the German emperor, and uh, probably this is one reason, um, because uh, while the uh, Austrian emperor uh, was in, in, in a certain kind of view um, not on the level of uh, European development, I would say. That, uh, quite uh, a situation that uh, collapsed naturally and, uh, shortly before the First World War when uh, the different nations and the different uh, poli- uh, political uh, strategies were not brought to a good end managed by the emperor, I would say. That means uh, 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 Franz Josef ignored uh, the positive political developments in the late 19th century made in Germany. So it was a great political fault made by him. I just wanted to say that one of the reasons why the Hungarian coronation was more of a priority and a preoccupation is that it had a legal implication Mm. in that the emperor had to be crowned in order then to rule in Hungary um, within six months of 
his correct. We had six months to do it, whereas in Bohemia or in Austria it was almost purely symbolic, uh, and in Bohemia would have been quite explosive, really, since a Bohemian coronation would have meant really a sop to the Czechs and would probably have offended quite a few Germans. But yes, the purely symbolic value of the Austrians and Austrian Bohemian coronation meant that they didn't have to do it, whereas the Hungarian was a necessity. So. But there exists also historic traditions that the, as the Austrian emperor uh, had a good experience with uh, Hungary since uh, Maria Therese in the year 1741, with the help of uh, the Hungarian nation, she could manage uh, to fight against uh, Prussia. And uh, since Joseph II, um, Austria had a little bit uh, a bad experience uh, uh, with the Bohemian nation, uh, I would say. That might uh, also... <coughs> yes, 1849 wasn't very yeah, nice for yeah, Hungary. Yeah. That might play, have played a, a role uh, in the, the politics. But there were... Um, I mean, Francius for a long time didn't bother being current king of Hungary. I mean, he just ruled Hungary by the army and the bureaucracy. Um, I'd just like to comment on the, the social um, laws. I think in the 1880s, Edward Tuffer introduced some um, social laws, including um, accident insurance and various piecemeal legislation, but there wasn't a big sort of grand piece uh, legislation. It was just a little bit of piecemeal here, some miners here, some sort of accident insurance and, and various other things. And was it consistent throughout the empire or was it effectively led to parallel domestic um, social policies operating in Hungary and the rest? I believe it, it, it certainly was different in Hungary and I think also amongst the different crown lands there was also quite, quite a lot of difference as well. And the other factory it was more than in England. Hmm. Sorry? I just have one question. Do you think it's possible to talk about a Habsburg cult? And I wondered if where... Sorry, a Habsburg what? Cult. Oh, cult. Yes. yes. It's my Australian accent, sorry. <laughs> and um, I was wondering the, the, the position of Joseph II in this, because... I think in the Hofburg, there are actually two Platz, Joseph Platz, so there might be one yeah, there. So. Um, but and so I that's, think not, that's not a, a, a denomination of the 18th century, but of later times. It's that's a, right. A, a, and I think in Bohemia, he was a symbol of German nationalism, but then possibly in Vienna of the Gesamtstaat. Mm. So I was just wondering if there was a Habsburg cult and what the position of Joseph II. A, a Habsburg cult uh, towards uh, the emperor, towards uh, the, the, uh, the empire, to the family and um, the position of the different rulers. I mean, it's interesting, in Helton Platz, there isn't an official... Sorry. I, I was wondering about the family itself, about the Habsburgs. And I, I was just wondering why at Helden Platz you don't have yeah. sort of a, a... I mean, Archduke, he's, he's an Archduke, he's not the Emperor, he's not, he wasn't the King, etc. Uh, Helden Platz is not the original name. Was the uh, Eisterer Burgplatz was the original name of the, uh, the Heldenplatz? Uh, we called it Heldenplatz uh, only after the year 1878. That means it's uh, nothing to do with the original situation in the 19th century. Habs Habsburg cult, uh, I would say, yes, but the Habsburg cult uh, that was realized and made by the Habsburg family, by the Habsburg strategies, 
and visualizations that means the Habsburg cult uh, did not come naturally, uh, was not made by the, by, the, uh, by the peoples or by the ethnic groups, but instead of that, uh, by the masterminds of the Habsburg cult, which were in uh, direct contact uh, naturally with the Habsburg family. So, so that means uh, uh, Johann Josef von Hohermeyer, for example, uh, I uh, saw a picture of him uh, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, PowerPoint presentation. That's, a, I think, the best example for the mastermind of Habsburg cult because he uh, acted as a, uh, as a mastermind, as a, a writer of poems, of uh, theater pieces, and also of... Uh, uh, picture uh, exhibition describer where we, which was uh, uh, which had a great influence uh, for the uh, uh, Austrian uh, national uh, history in the second half of the century uh, at that time uh, Hohmeyer uh, emigrated towards Bavaria and didn't uh, wanted to have anything uh, to do with the Habsburg monarchy yeah. that's uh, quite uh, interesting yeah, it's curious, I mean, if you take away the Habsburgs, I mean, what we've got, I mean, you've got the Habsburg monarchy, and it's held together, it's a Hausmacht, it's a dynastic state held together by the dynasty. Uh, otherwise, what have all these subjects got to be loyal to? I mean, Austria doesn't exist as such. Uh, there's no such place to invent the Austrian Empire in 1804. I mean, <laughs> if you haven't got the Habsburgs who hold it all together... I mean, there's no reason for it to stay together. I mean, this is the whole Habsburg uh, defense. I mean, this is why Francis I said, when he's talked, when someone says someone's an Austrian patriot, he says, but is he a patriot for me? Because unless he's a patriot for the dynasty, I mean, the, the whole conglomerations of territories, there's no internal coherence. It's, they're, they're just family estates owned by this dynasty, and that's the thing that gives them coherence. So... Unless there's a Habsburg cult, it's a kind of glue that must keep it all together. I mean, the, the empire doesn't mean anything without the Habsburgs. It would be an arbitrary number of uh, territories stuck in the middle of Central Europe. But uh, the only thing that gives it any meaning is, of course, the Habsburg family. Uh, Austria, uh, didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> Austria uh, played a very great part in the, in, the, in the strategy of the Habsburg monarchy. But uh, it's interesting that... Uh, uh, the personification of Austria, for example, a statue or the, the monument, uh, played only a minor role. That uh, you won't find any huge statue of the personification of Austria in the second half of the 19th century. It was overwhelmed naturally by the cult of the Habsburg dynasty. Uh, sorry, Paul, first, and then the lady glasses and the one here. Sorry, thank you for the lecture. Uh, my, my question um, deals with the statue of Maria Theresa that you, you showed us, uh, which immediately made me think of, uh, well, two things. Uh, the first thing, of course, is that it is Maria and not Joseph or, or not uh, anybody else, the, the, the kind of the male line. So I think it, it does tie up very neatly with the, the point that both you and Alan have made about the importance of the family, the importance of the dynasty. Mm. But as a female ruler, She's also very important as this, this matriarch, this, this maternal figure, mm. um, you know, presiding over these other male figures, uh, kind of the, the military or, or the, the, uh, the um, uh, reformers. 
Oh, thank you. Yes, that's, that's, that's handy. Um, it also put me in mind then uh, of uh, a similar statue from a similar period uh, in St. Petersburg, which is dedicated mm. to Catherine, Catherine mm. the Great, uh, where again she presides over these men who mm. are actually doing most of the, the, most of the important achievements, um, but doing so from a, a kind of a, you know, a, a heightened position. Unlike this one, of course, uh, the Catherine one is hidden away because Catherine's quite a controversial figure as a usurper and, and so on, whereas Mariah, of course, is, is fully legitimate. Um, just on, on that score, I mean, can you talk us through who some of these individuals are and, and what they represent about Austria's greatness or Habsburg greatness? Uh, no. <laughs> the, most, the, the most famous uh, protagonist of the, of the Reformation uh, statutes uh, under the reign of Maria Theresa, that means Kaunitz, Van Swieten, uh, Lichtenstein, the great militaries, uh, Daun, uh, Laudon, and also uh, the young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That means that uh, uh, not persons uh, of the dynasty nationally, but of the state. That's, uh, that means uh, Maria Theresia reigns over the Austrian state and uh, provides a good example of the enlightenment. That means a prefiguration of the reform of the state uh, under Franz Josef. That was the idea of Franz Josef uh, to erect a, such a statue. Mm. Uh, yes, gentlemen. Oh, sorry, no, the lady first, who I forgot. Yes, you. Robert, can you wait for the microphone? Yes, Perhaps one facet of dynastic cult mm. is the obvious selection of first names in families. Mm. Uh, you had to have in each family a Maria or even a Mitzi, and you had to have a Rudolf or a Franz, um, which showed on a, on a local level your connection to the dynastic um, family. And uh, having done research uh, on, on, on archival research and genealogy, you get these names, the imperial names, throughout the whole empire, whether it's Janos or Ferenc Janos in Hungary or Franz Josef. It is a mirror of the dynastic family, the way normal people, uh, probably lower class people, call their children. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm, I would like to add that uh, Maria Theresia is only a selection of, uh, I think, a dozen, uh, dozen names uh, which uh, were uh, um, given to Maria Theresia at her birth. Does it mean Maria Theresia, Antonia, Josefa, and so on? Uh, that means Maria Theresia is a short version. Of, uh, of, uh, of, of that uh, Habsburg dynastic uh, cult of names, which always naturally are famous saints. That means Theresia means nothing else but Theresia uh, from Avila, the famous uh, Spanish saint. And, and if you uh, go today to uh, churches in Vienna and uh, Lower Austria, built in the second half of the 18th century, you will always f find... Uh, Mm, uh, uh, oil paintings uh, with uh, the visions of the uh, Theresia of Avila and naturally uh, concerning Francis Stephen, her husband, uh, pictures uh, describing Franz Xaver or Franz Regis, uh, two famous Jesuit saints. That's very important also not only for the 
the cult of uh, Habsburg uh, dynasty, but also for the visual medium to propagate the function uh, and the importance of the names, not only by the name itself, but also by the visual medium. Sorry, who, who else? Oh, sorry, Yeah, um, question would be, um, I try to think of a monument uh, for the unknown soldier, stuff like that, in, in this direction, which would, of course, counter like the whole idea of um, making monuments to, towards the monarchic family. Mm -hmm. I could think of the um, Deutschmeister mm -hmm. uh, monument, but apart from that, could you elaborate on pre-1914? No, you're right. It's the first uh, monument... Uh, for the unknown soldier, uh, I think 1902, uh, on the Deutschmeisterplatz in the first Viennese district. Uh, before that, uh, very interesting monument. Uh, does not exist uh, any uh, monument for the unknown soldier. That's uh, uh, quite un interesting. But in the, that's the situation for the monuments. In the uh, graphics, for example, that means in the lithographies or uh, engravings, you find uh, 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 descriptions and uh, depictions of the unknown soldiers uh, even in the 18th or 19th years of the 19th century. But the nationalist uh, situation regarding monuments is a different one. So isn't there one just opposite the Hofburg at the entrance to in the, under the arch? There's an unknown soldier. But not, the, uh, not in the uh, beginning of the 20th century. In the, um, in the big arch. Yeah, it is during the First World War. Yeah. 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 But that's the first, is that, is that the first? At the, of, at the end of the reign of yeah. Francis Josef, yeah. At, and uh, not with, with, uh, with any figures, but uh, the symbolic demonstration yeah, of that. Yeah. 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 So, gentlemen there. Dr. Telesco, uh, you mentioned the Kronprinzenberg, this uh, famous um, enterprise designed to display the ethnic diversity of the Habsburg monarchy around 1900, so at its very end. Um, can you tell us more about the um, contributors and their academic background, whether they were uh, influenced by international uh, ethnography or ethnography practiced abroad, maybe in France or in Britain? and uh, about the reception of the Kronprinzenberg as a state-of-the-art display of ethnography in, in Austria, actually. So um, how about the standard of Austrian ethnography around 1900? I would like to tell you uh, uh, some more about the Kronprinzenberg, but the research concerning this famous enterprise uh, so at its beginnings, unfortunately. Uh, what I say, um, what I can say is that uh, uh, we can uh, detect in these volumes uh, specialists, not from the center, that means Vienna, but from uh, each region. region. Uh, that's very important. Uh, the um, committee which was responsible for the publishing of the Kronprinzenwerk was uh, certainly at Vienna and uh, edited by uh, the famous Count Wilczek, but uh, the specialists did not work in Vienna, but in the Crown lands. Uh, that's the information I can give, but uh, there was a project at the Austrian Academy of Sciences, the Commission for Cultural History, some years ago. They wanted to um, 
do some uh, research concerning the German and the Hungarian uh, edition because there exist differences, very interesting differences. You can detect some anti-Semitic uh, tendencies in the Hungarian edition, but not in the German one. But uh, unfortunately, not, uh, no article or no book uh, was published uh, concerning this research. We hope uh, more for the next months, years. Don't know. Well, I'm big, sorry. It's big enough to keep you going for quite a while. I just thought these pages were all you. Um, yes, Mom. Thank you, Dr. Tlesko. Uh, quick question about the Hero Square. Um, I, I thought an interesting juxtaposition to the Austrian Hero Square would be the one in Budapest, the Hirschhochte. Mm -hmm. um, this, uh, this Hero Square, for those who haven't seen it, is a, is a trinity. In the background, you have the um, the leaders of Hungary, and mm -hmm. only Hungary, mm -hmm. um, despite it being raised for the millennium, the thousand year of Hungary in uh, 1896. Um, uh, the Magyar um, nomads at the base of a column and at the top of a column, uh, a religious Christian symbol, um, none of which in any way uh, speaks to the Habsburg or the Austrian uh, side of the dual monarchy, so it is a strong nationalist symbol. I was wondering um, how you felt the the Austrian centralists, uh, how they responded to this, um, whether they tried to prevent this from happening, um, and what it says about the power of the Hungarian state vis-à-vis um, -vis these Austrian centralists. Thank you. Mm. Perhaps one can uh, detect some uh, kind of compromise because uh, the statues of this uh, Millennium Monument in Budapest uh, show us uh, uh, the uh, uh, Habsburg uh, in the function as a uh, Hungarian kings. Uh, there was a statue of Maria Theresia in the Millennium uh, Monument uh, and of the former Habsburg reigns uh, in, in the function of uh, Hungarian kings, but they were, were nationally uh, demolished after the year 1919. So that, that means you have, uh, as you said, uh, a strong Hungarian uh, notion of this monument but on the other side uh, we have uh, the Habsburgs uh, in the function as the Hungarian kings. Uh, perhaps this monument can describe this uh, uh, tension you described this tension between centralization and regionalization uh, in a very good uh, manner because no such monument uh, does exist in Austria. All right, um, we should really be closing. I have maybe time for one last question, if anybody wants to ask the last final question of the session. Ah, gentleman up at the top. Thanks very much. Um, this was so wide-ranging. Uh, it was incredible, and, and my question is very specific, actually. Uh, you mentioned the work of Diane Reynolds on the arts and crafts and shaping uh, Habsburg consciousness in Bosnia, and I think in many ways Bosnia and Herzegovina represents an ideal example of this so-called colonization effort because it starts so late. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that so shortly after uh, the Congress of Berlin, 
uh, the Austro-Hungarian uh, officials uh, begin the establishment of the Landes Museum for Bosnia and Herzegovina, which develops into more than simply a museum about the Bosnian land and the peoples historically itself, but also an entire research complex of several buildings. Um, and I just wonder if you might be able to say something about that. That's uh, very important because the idea of the Landes Museum um, did not emerge in the uh, 1860s, 70s, or 80s, but uh, much more earlier in the 20s and 30s of the 19th century. The um, first uh, real, I think the first realization of a Landes Museum in the Austrian Empire was uh, the Innsbruck Landes Museum. And we are here in the 1820s and 1830s of the 19th century. That was an idea of Emperor Ferdinand I, which spread holes, uh, upon the monarchy, and I think has nothing to do with the situation um, in Bosnia Herzegovina after the Congress of Berlin. That's a very long uh, development of this idea with uh, a broad range of um, variations uh, concerning the objects which were um, uh, exposed in the ex exhibitions. Uh, that's an important question, and uh, there exists a very important recent study made by Marlies Raffler five years ago, which uh, focuses uh, very exactly on that point. I think this uh, could be an advice for a deeper exploration um, yeah, this study. Uh, as I can say no. I mean you get yeah. cultural centres in Prague and uh, well Hungary you get a national museum yeah. uh, founded by the other Sechen yeah. uh, I think what in 1810 or something but the patriotic uh, organisation Patriotische Verein für Ungarn uh, which was founded in the late in the 18th century but, uh, but presumably there was some political input, uh, yeah. impetus in Bosnia has been after the Congress of Berlin, but no, I did. But I mean, certainly there's a general trend, as yeah. you say, much, much earlier in the century. Uh, well, I think my last duty just now is to thank you very much for a highly stimulating and fascinating talk with pictures, and I enjoyed it all, and uh, I'm very glad you came, and I'm very glad we've established this tradition now, and I look forward to consolidating our links with Austria and Vienna and I think you've contributed to that tonight so thank you very much indeed. Thank you.